Hey, welcome back to The Caption Life. I'm your co-host and TV slash film reviewer, Sean. And in this mini episode, I'm reviewing the movie Spider-Man No Way Home. So if you haven't watched this yet, press pause on this podcast episode, go watch that movie, then come back. Let's go. To the Caption Life, a podcast about how comics and pop culture impact life in society and vice versa. Before we get started with this episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on and follow us on social media at Caption Life. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, you name it, we're probably on it. You can also find out more information and past episodes at thecaptionlife.com. So before we get started with this episode, again, Final spoiler alert, we will be talking about Spider-Man No Way Home, and there will be spoilers discussed in this episode. So this is your final warning that if you have not seen the film yet, please press pause on this. Do not get it spoiled for you. Go see the movie and then come back and listen to this episode. So I'll give you a couple seconds to do that right now. Three, two, one. All right. So Spider-Man No Way Home, overall thoughts. I'll be honest, this is an amazing film, okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit later about my own background and connection with Spider-Man and why I think this should tell you a lot about how great this movie is. Um, but the way I would describe it is that this is a very nostalgic and exciting movie, and it's a movie about redemption and second chances. So it's definitely written for people who have watched the previous Spider-Man films with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. It's written for anyone that is a fan of Spider-Man. But if you haven't seen the other films, you will be left out on a few things and you'll probably miss some important pieces as to why that was an important piece to that story and to that movie and how it connects back to the previous film that that particular Spider-Man was connected to. Um, again, it's just, this is probably one of the best MCU films. I would rank this up as high as Infinity War and Endgame. Um, I don't know if I would go just yet to go above and beyond that, just because, again, I think there's a lot to unpack here, and there's a lot of history beyond the MCU that you have to be familiar with to really enjoy this movie. But in terms of quality of story writing, production value, everything that you can think of that goes into a movie, cinematography, audio, things like that, it is definitely one of the best MCU films and I would say it might even be one of the best superhero films that we've seen in a long time so I, I definitely give it you know a, a close to a 10 out of 10 and is definitely something that I think we're going to be talking for years to come because this is something that a lot of people have been waiting for this moment and I know that when I first heard about this movie there's been a lot of discussions about the hype and I was worried that this would probably be a letdown for fans and I got to say this just exceeded my wildest expectations. And I think it lives up to and beyond the hype that's been created about this movie. So, you know, a round of applause for Sony and for Marvel. They pulled this off very well. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of disappointment from anybody going and watch this film. And I think we're going to just continue to see a lot of appreciation for this movie. This movie, I would also describe it as just a personal fan appreciation letter from Sony and Marvel's, especially Marvel, to Spider-Man fans everywhere. Because again, as I mentioned, this is really written 
for anyone that is a fan of the MCU and the fan of the Spider-Man Tom Holland plays, but it is particularly written for those who grew up with the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man as well, too. And I think they did a great job of saying to the fans, thank you very much for all the support that you've given us. <laughs> and even if you've been disappointed by some of the past films or anything like that, hopefully this makes up for it. And I got to say, me personally, I think it does make up for it. And I know that I'm not the only person that's going to say this here is that I wished that I didn't have any of this spoiled for me. Like with, with all the conversations that's been happening with all uh, the leaks that's been out there that I saw on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. I know that I really wish I went into the movie not knowing anything about what I was about to see. But I got to say this, even though there were some things that were spoiled for me, it was just so beyond belief on how they did it. That was still amazing. So even though I knew that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield was going to show up, and even though I knew Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock was probably going to show up, when they actually did, it didn't really ruin the moment for me at all. I mean, I wish I was able to experience it the same way that we experienced Avengers Endgame when you know Captain America was able to wield Molnir and... I hate the fact that we're not going to be able to experience that. But at the same time, it definitely didn't take away from that experience in the sense that I was still able to enjoy it and loved it. And it will still be a huge part of my MCU experience in spite of that. In the future, I hope we don't get any more spoilers for movies because this has just been beyond ridiculous on what has been happening this year. I don't know why people think that it's a good idea to do this. And I really wish that Marvel Studios will be able to try to crack down a little bit more. And I know they do a great job with it, generally speaking. Um, but I'm just hoping that we don't see this continuation of spoilers getting out there from people. I don't know how they're going to do that, but I just hope that we're going to see some changes to try to tighten that down a little bit. The other thing I was really impressed by this movie is how they were able to write in a lot of things that we we're expecting, like the popular meme that we've seen that we just said we need to see this happen in the movie. A lot of the theories, a lot of fan ideas. It was written really well as part of a natural, organic part of the story that I don't think it cheapened by any means whatsoever by them including those things in there. So I thought they did a fantastic job of making sure that when they included it in there, it made sense and that it wasn't something that was clearly only set up just to have this thing in there. So they did a fantastic job of being able to do that. Now, before we go into my own background with Spider-Man, if you are interested, I did write a review that's spoiler-free for ComicWatch.com. So if you're interested, I will put the link to that article if you want to share with them a spoiler-free review. Okay, so before I go into the movie of Spider-Man further, let me kind of explain my own background to Spider-Man and why I think that me getting this excited about this film should tell you why this is a really good film. So I grew up with Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. When that movie came out in 2002, I believe, or 2001, I was a student in high school. And we just had X-Men that got released from Fox Studios. And so this was our second superhero movie that I had as a kid growing up from Marvel. We already had Batman and Superman, things like that. Um, but this is our one of our first Marvel films that we got as a child. And so Tobey Maguire was always my Spider-Man growing up. 
With that being said, I've never been a diehard fan of Spider-Man. Like, yes, I liked Spider-Man. I thought he was a cool superhero, and I would read and watch his stuff casually, but I was never a diehard fan. I remember when I went into the movie theaters with some of my friends who were Spider-Man fans, they would tell me every little detail about the Spider-Man character and how the movie got some things right and how they wish they did something different. And I was just like, I liked it. Like, it it was fine with me (laughs) and everything. So, um, So I was never a diehard Spider-Man fan. I was more of a casual fan. And then when Andrew Garfield became Spider-Man, I was in my early 20s when that happened. And I watched those two movies and I thought it was okay. I I, I liked them for what they were. Um, I wasn't like, again, huge fans of Spider-Man or his character or anything like that. And I remember thinking, you know, Tobey Maguire was kind of an odd choice in my mind just because I thought he was kind of a weird-looking dude, but hey, I thought he still did well with Peter Parker, and then when it came to Andrew Garfield, it was like they went the opposite direction. They had a tall, lanky, good-looking guy playing Spider-Man, um, and I know there's a lot of criticisms for you know both actors portraying them for whatever reason. I thought they did well with their own portrayal, and I never really criticized a whole lot. Um, like I said, I thought it was odd when I heard about them taking on those parts, but then when I watched them, I was like, okay, you know, they did a pretty good job with it. But again, I wasn't a diehard fan of any of the films or any of the Spider-Man comics or anything like that. I was just more of a casual fan. I've only watched the Andrew Garfield films, I think once, maybe twice. Um, And so that tells you that I don't have a whole lot of emotional connection or investment into this. And then we get into this movie, and I got to say, the way I think that this film portrayed Andrew Garfield and Tommy McGuire. I think they did a fantastic job because these were the Spider-Men that everybody was wanting to see on the screen, right? I think that anybody that had criticisms of either actor playing Spider-Man, that pretty much went away because they did a great job of continuing the story of these two actors, Peter Parker and Spider-Man, in this movie that just did a fantastic job of doing that. So I'm going to go into that a little bit later. But again, I go in without any sort of invested emotion or connection with Spider-Man film, other than the fact that I grew grew up with them. Um, but I would say, you know, it's more of a parallel experience. And then after this film, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to go back and just watch these films. Now I love those characters. Um, and so I think they just did a fantastic job of being able to do that for people who are either in love with Spider-Man from the beginning or people who are casual fans. And then they want to go back and watch all those films, right? I'll say this is that my son went with me to go watch the movie. And after watching the movie, he actually have watched you know, a couple of the movies from Tobey Maguire. I think maybe Andrew Garfield as well, too. But immediately after watching Spider-Man No Way Home, he ended up watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because that was one of his favorite Spider-Man movies. And so I think the fact that as soon as we got in the car, he wanted to continue that experience tells you how powerful this film is. Okay, so that's my own background with Spider-Man. Let's get into the movie now. And I want to start with the characters first before we start getting into some of the Easter eggs and the bigger highlights. First and foremost, if you know anything about me, I am a huge Daredevil fan. I love the Netflix series. I love Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. And in this movie, we got to see Matt Murdock for the first time in the MCU. And I will tell you that I was that guy that yelled and clapped when he showed up on the big screen. I am not ashamed to admit that. And I just absolutely lost it. Even though I knew that there was a picture out there that showed him being on the set and in this scene, actually, that we see him, I just try to pretend that I did not see that and that maybe it might be fabricated, like Charlie Cox said. 
But when he showed up, I just loved it. I loved how they introduced him. I loved that you got to see his superpower when he caught the brick being thrown through the window. Um, and I think they did a great job of not only introducing that character and getting that set up, but I appreciate the fact that they didn't introduce a Daredevil. And the reason why is because we are already getting a lot of characters being pulled in that are big name villains and superheroes that I think it made a lot more sense to introduce the character as Matt Murdock and not to do a reveal of Daredevil in this movie and to save that for a later series or a later movie, however they decide to do that. So I think that Marvel Studios did a great job and made a fantastic decision in just introducing Matt Murdock. But I love the fact that we all knew who he was. I had to explain that to my son because he's never seen Daredevil. He's only seen Daredevil as the costume character, but he's never seen Matt Murdock. So when I explained that to him, he got excited about that. Um, but I just love the fact that it seems like it was everything that we've seen from the Netflix series in terms of his suit, his cane, his sunglasses, everything. And so I just love seeing him on there on the big screen. We also got to see J. Jonah Jameson in this movie, which we did see him from Far From Home. And so we got to see him a little bit more in this. And I got to tell you, it's hard to see J. Jonah Jameson being played by anyone else than J.K. Simmons. He did a fantastic job of that role in the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi films. And he did a great job in this film as well, too, that I think that whoever takes on that character later on, in the MCU, whether it's like 15, 20, 30 years later, I think they're going to have big shoes to fill, but he just did a great job of continuing that persona of a J. Jonah Jameson in a different universe and in the style of what we probably know is, is supposed to be reflective of a misinformation website, InfoWars. It seems to be the big inspiration from that. And if you're not familiar with that, don't worry. It's not a big deal. All you need to know is that it's a very controversial website, and it seems like it is something right up J. Jonah Jameson's alley, and it makes sense in this sort of world. And so I think that J.K. Simmons is always going to continue to be J. Jonah Jameson for a lot of people, just like how Robert Downey Jr. is always going to be Iron Man for a lot of people as well, too, right? So let's talk about Doctor Strange a little bit. And I got to be honest, it seems like every time we see Doctor Strange on the big screen, we don't quite know who he is or what his character development is like. Because every time he shows up in a movie, it seems like his character, his persona changes a little bit in terms of his attitude. Uh, Doctor Strange and Avengers Affinity War is a little bit similar, but you thought that by the end of Doctor Strange that he was probably a little bit less egotistical, but then when it came to Affinity War, he seemed to still have that with that scene with Iron Man and Wong and Bruce Banner, that he was still very full of himself. And so when we get to this movie, he seemed to have a little bit less of that, but I just thought it was really weird how... Peter Parker comes to him and says, hey, can you make it so that everyone forgets me? And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's not a problem. And then as he's doing the spell, he doesn't seem to think about, hey, maybe I should sit down and explain this to you, what it means for everybody to forget who you are, right? Like this is somebody who as a medical doctor and as the former Sorcerer Supreme, which we know that he is technically not the Sorcerer Supreme now because Wong got on technicality, right? He should have thought about, I need to sit down and tell this person who is not familiar with the magical world at all what it means if we do this. And the fact that he didn't do it, like he's a smart guy, but he seemed to let this slip. I, I just thought that there's just a lot of the weird things that they're doing with Doctor Strange that just seems to not really make sense. I'm hoping that they could try to steer Doctor Strange's character in the right direction when we get to Doctor Strange 2, uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So let's talk about all the villains that we saw in this movie with 
Doc Ock, the Green Goblin, Electro, the Sandman, Lizard, all the characters that we've seen from the previous movies, they all did such a great job in continuing their character that they portrayed. You know, some of them was 20 years ago, some of them were, you know, 10 years ago, but they did a fantastic job of doing this. And I got to give props to all of them, but especially Jamie Foxx, who just did a fantastic job of playing not just Electro as the villain, but Max Dillon as a person as well, too. And I love the fact that in this whole entire movie, as I mentioned, this is about second chances and redemption. And that we get to see a little bit of that with Max Dillon kind of struggling with he loves who he is now as someone with power and, you know, not a loser in his eyes. But the fact that he's kind of struggling with, you know, is this the right thing to do? And that if all these villains, you know, right, not just Max Dillon, but with all these villains, Tom Holland's Peter Parker is trying to correct all these things and try to make it so that. They go back to the universe, you know, quote unquote fix, but really treated and given them a second chance to be the better versions of themselves. Right. And you saw that with all these characters that they wanted to do that and they opened up to it. And of course, we saw it just kind of snowballed very badly. But I thought we saw a great job of this from Jamie Foxx. Alfred Molina did a fantastic job as Doc Oct, as always. And Willem Dafoe, who played this character almost 20 years ago, and bringing him back into an even more sinister character is just very impressive. And, he, and there was no question about that at all, right? And so I think they just did a great job of writing these villains, but also writing in a way that makes sense in a Spider-Man world, not just for Tom Holland's Spider-Man, but for the universes that they came from. Because we always knew that they had those special connections with the Peter Parker of their universe, and that they were actually started out as good people But then they were just led down a really terrible path that got them to where they're at now to become villains in that essence. And so I love the fact that this movie tried to set up so that way they had their second chance at redemption and that they can actually become the better versions of themselves that doesn't require them to be villains anymore. And I love the fact that they did that and all the actors did a great job of portraying that and showing that coming through from beginning to end because it was just so great being able to see those villainous parts of them, but also those human parts that shows that they want to have a better life and that they want to not be seen as evil anymore. And last but not least, the people we've been waiting to see on the big screen the Spider-Men, Tobey Maguire, and Andrew Garfield. And I got to say, I love the fact that they wrote it in such a way that those characters continue to live their life beyond the movies that we see them in, right? So we weren't pulling those characters in from where we left them off at in their final films, but we actually were able to pull them in from, you know, Tobey Maguire as a older, more experienced, more mature Peter Parker. And I got to say, this was the Peter Parker that Tobey Maguire was really born to play. Okay. I know that a lot of people had criticisms about Tobey Maguire and the original Spider-Man films, but seeing him on the big screen as the experienced, mature Peter Parker who has his life together for the most part. And he portrayed that throughout the entire film. And I just love how everybody got this vibe about how his Peter Parker was kind of the ultimate mentor for both Tom Holland's Peter Parker and Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker. 
And then with Andrew Garfield's period of Parker, we see that his story keeps continuing on after the death of Gwen Stacy. And he shares that he still has a lot of rage from her death and he's still struggling a lot from that and that he still has a lot of heavy burden on his shoulders that he is still struggling with, that he doesn't have everything together, very much like Tom Holland's Peter Parker that we're seeing here, and that he's still struggling, but he's still going on as Spider-Man in his universe, and that we see those struggles still play out in this movie as well, too. So I just love the fact that they wrote it as a continuation from where they left off, as opposed to pulling them in from where we last saw them in the movies. And I think that was just a brilliant way to be able to tell those stories and continue those stories for the fans that love those movies and that we got to see them resolve some of their own issues and their regrets as well, too, and that they get their second chance. And these Peter Parkers that we saw on the screen was the best version that we could see in the terms of story writing as well, too. Because like I mentioned before, there was a lot of criticisms about Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield playing their Peter Parker. But with this film, I feel like we're not going to see as many criticisms because they kept the story a little bit shorter, but did a great job of resolving some of those issues and just showing the best version of themselves within the universe that they wrote them for, right? So Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker is definitely not the best version of himself because he's still working out rage, but it was a continuation of the story that got left off that was never resolved from the previous films for Andrew Garfield. So we got to see that here with the continuation of his rage and all the issues he's dealing with with the final battle scene in this movie. And we can kind of see that this doesn't give a 100% completion for his character, but it is a way for him to be able to feel like he could move on because he did something good. And we'll talk about that here a little bit. So now that we know all the spoilers and all the people who are in the film, can we just say that we now know for a fact and we got on record that Charlie Cox and Andrew Garfield are just liars because we know that they've been lying from the beginning about being in the movie. And Andrew Garfield even tried to say that all the photos that we've seen and all the videos that we've seen have been photoshopped. They pretty much flat out lied to everybody. But again, we know that it had to happen because it's probably part of their contracts that they cannot admit or say anything in there. So I don't begrudge them for that by any means whatsoever. But I just think it's funny just how they flat out lied <laughs> to everybody. They even tried to be vague enough so that he doesn't confirm or deny anything. But I just love the fact that now we've seen the film. We know that this is how they lie. So let's get into some of the Easter eggs and other little things I noticed. So, did you notice that when Peter Parker comes to school for the first time since his identity has been released, that in the background of the mural at his high school, Howard Stark is there. And so it makes me wonder, was Howard Stark a graduate of that school or was he a major donor? What was his connection there? But I love the fact that they are putting little things like that that connects it to the larger MCU universe. But my question is, if Howard Stark is in that mural, how come Tony Stark wasn't it? Did he not go to that school, even though his father may have went to that school as well, too? So I thought it was interesting how they put Howard Stark in there and not Tony Stark or maybe even another character in there. And I'm trying to remember or figure out why they decided to use Howard Stark instead of other people that they probably could have pulled in that may or may not have made more sense to use for this film. And did we not all love that 
throwback to the Spider-Man meme where the multiple Spider-Men are pointing at each other, say, hey, who are you? Who are you? And we saw that in this movie. And again, they did a great job of making it work and making it make sense without it being for cheap points. But I love the fact that they were throwing those things in there that's very popular in pop culture that we all love to see on the big screen. So I love that they threw that in. And of course, the classic line from Norman Osborn when he's in his cell that says, I'm a bit of a scientist myself, which is a very famous meme now. And I love that they wrote that in. It's just so fantastic. Um, Going back a little bit, because I forgot to mention this earlier, but this is something that Marvel does. And this movie was no exception, is that Marvel loves to create trailers that intentionally mislead you. The one thing that I noticed here is that the first trailer we got when we saw Peter Parker talking to Doctor Strange, there was that little discussion that Doctor Strange and Wong had where it makes it seem like Wong is telling Doctor Strange to not do the spell under any circumstances. But when we watched the movie, we didn't see that line at all. Now, sometimes what they do is that they'll film multiple scenes and try to figure out which direction they want to go with. But I got to say, this is just one of many instances where Marvel does this intentionally. For example, the first time I really noticed this is in Avengers Infinity War, where we all thought we were going to see Hulk and Wakanda. We did not get that. So I think that this makes sense for Marvel to do and They'll probably continue to do that to try to mislead us. So that way we can kind of keep going in and not really knowing if that's what we're going to see or not. So that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think that's just something that we're going to have to expect is that anytime we see a trailer, we're not 100% sure if that's what we're going to see in the movie or not. Now, I love the scene where we saw Tobey Maguire trying to help Andrew Garfield out by giving him affirmations to say, say you're amazing, <laughs> say you're amazing as a call out to the amazing Spider-Man role that he's playing, right? And then the part where <laughs> Tom Holland <laughs> thought that he was going to impress Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield by saying, I don't want to brag, but I was part of the Avengers. And then Tommy McGuire lands that line so great. He was like, oh, that's great. Who are they? <laughs> and I know when I watched that, and as soon as he said, oh, that's great, part of me was just like, oh, was there Avengers in his universe that we're going to find out about <laughs> for him to say, who are they? Was this a great delivery line? And then Andrew Garfield, perfect line from his character to say, are you in a band? Like, I thought that was just really great how they interact with each other, because even though they are very different versions of the same character, there were still elements that still resonated of all three of them. They all interacted in the same way of that very youthfulness, awe-inspiring, that everything in the world still surprises them and fascinates them. And we saw a lot of this between the three of them. And, and again, Tobey Maguire is a more mature Peter Parker, but we still get glimpses of that in that older, mature version of him. And so I love how they make them very distinct in continuing their story, but they still have the same elements and essence of what makes Peter Parker here as well, too. And then, of course, when they're talking about how they're fighting aliens and then Tom Holland was talking about how he fought Thanos and then Tommy McGuire was talking about how he fought Venom and then Andrew Garfield's like, I want to fight an alien. Like, again, spot on with how each of their Peter Parker would react to that and that still captures the essence of who that character is. The other thing that I notice, and I'm sure everybody else noticed this as well too, and I don't know what this means, is that when the Department of Damage Control came in to get all the stuff from Peter Parker and to interrogate him, Peter Parker, Tom Holland, talked about how they should talk to Nick Fury about Mysterio. And then that's when the agents share with him that Nick Fury hasn't been on Earth for over a year. So this tells us a couple of things here, right? One, Peter Parker did not know that. 
And so it makes me wonder, why did Peter Parker not know that? But this random Department of Damage Control guy did. So I found that very interesting in terms of how he found out, how he knew about that, and wonder who else may have known and why Peter Parker wasn't informed of this either. But the other thing that we also know is that Nick Fury was only being impersonated for a year. So I know there was a lot of theories out there about how Talos may have been Nick Fury for a long time, and there was theories about you know, him cutting the toast with what he said in Captain Marvel about how he can't eat toast if it's cut diagonally. And then that scene with Avengers Age of Ultron where he cut something diagonally. And there was just a lot of theories going on about what that meant. And a lot of people thinking that maybe Talos actually took over when Nick Fury was presumed dead in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. But in this movie, we get confirmation that Nick Fury, for the most part, was off the world for a year and that that's probably when Talos took over his identity for the year. So I think this is going to set it up for a secret invasion. And so we'll see what comes of that. But I wonder if that's going to lead to any other theories. So if you have something that you want to share about this thought, let me know. And I would love to talk to you about that because I find this little detail was probably unnecessary, but very interesting. Last but not least, before we get into the biggest highlights of the movie, is that the scene where we saw the multiverse starting to crack and Doctor Strange is trying to keep it all together, we saw all of the villains and all the people who knew Peter Parker coming into this universe. I don't know if you caught this, but I saw a silhouette or an outline of two people that are known to be part of the Spider-Man universe, and that was Rhino and Kraven the Hunter as well, too. I didn't, I've only seen this film once, and so I haven't really been able to go back and watch it again to pay attention to that very closely. But again, I want to hear from you. What were some of the other people that you think you noticed in those silhouettes and those highlights? And what do we think it might mean? Does it mean that we're going to get a preview of some of these villains later on? Or was it just a simple call out to those villains from the other Spider-Man universes? I think that's probably what it is. I think it's the latter. I don't think we're going to see all these characters later on the MCU, but it'll be interesting to see if this has a bigger meaning, if they're teasing something. Okay, so let's talk about the biggest highlights that I have about this movie. And as I mentioned before, what I love about this movie is that it continues from all the classic characters, villains, and Spider-Man from their previous universes that they come from and that we get to see those stories continue on in this movie, right? So we get to see that Doc Ock has his mechanical arms fixed by Tom Holland's Peter Parker by creating that new little chip that allows his mind to control his arms rather than the other way around, which is how it should always be, right? And that's what he was intending to do, and then he just had that accident that turned him into a villain, right? And we saw a lot of that happen with the other villains, with how they were trying to help... Norman Osborn by getting rid of Green Goblin and his split personality, how they were going to cure Max Dillon of his electricity superpower, cure Flint Marco from being the Sandman and curing Dr. Kirk Connors from being the lizard. And so I thought it was a great way to remind us that even though these are villains of Spider-Man world, they started out as people who wanted to help the world and that we saw Tom Holland being the best version of his Peter Parker wanting to help these people before he sent them back, I thought it was a great way to show, again, another element and essence of who the person of Peter Parker is here. And as I mentioned before, we saw Andrew Garfield's character still dealing with the aftermath of Gwen Stacy's death and how he seems to be in a dark place with everything that's going on. And with Tobey Maguire's character, again, being a matured, experienced Spider-Man and being more of a mentor figure for both 
Tom Holland's Peter Parker and Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker, and that we get to see how their lives had continued on beyond the last events of their movie. And it seems like Tobey Maguire's character was able to live a happy life with MJ. And I think we all love that part. And that gives us hope for everybody else in the universe as well, too. So I just think that the way they handled the storytelling of multiple universes, of multiple characters from different universes, and how they continued those stories within the bigger story of Tom Holland's Spider-Man No Way Home was just a home run for the writing team. So excellent job there. Next is Aunt May's death. Now, I have to say that I don't think any of us were surprised by this. I think we saw it coming at some point. But I've got to say, I understand why this scene was needed from a Spider-Man storytelling point of view, because we always saw that motivation from Uncle Ben's death and things like that. I just don't know if we need to have it keep on happening. And so we saw Aunt May killed off and that she gave that popular line of great power comes great responsibility. And it makes me wonder for Tom Holland's Peter Parker, are we ever going to learn more about what happened to his Uncle Ben, right? So I don't think they really need to talk about this or really need to go back and explain this at all moving forward. But it just makes me wonder if we're ever going to find out. Um, but I think if we never do, it's not a big deal. And I think we're, we'll be okay with that because Aunt May was really his character that helped guide him in this universe that we see him in. The other criticism I have about her death is that I think the production team and the writing team probably let this draw out a little bit too long because with this scene, we saw her get hit with the glider and we all know what was going to happen to her, but then they make it seem like she was just completely okay, that she was standing around talking and walking, but then they just lingered in that scene for a little too long for my comfort that I was just waiting for her to finally collapse and die because it was just clear that this scene was a little bit awkward and they were trying to make this, you know, a little bit of a surprise, like, oh, maybe she doesn't die after all. But I think because they kept dragging it on and on, we were just kind of waiting for her to die at that point. So that part, I think they could have improved on. But again, I understand why they did this and why they need to have that sort of Uncle Ben moment, but with Aunt May. And I think that this was a great character for them to have. And I hate that they killed her off in this movie and in the MCU, because I think she would have been a fantastic character to continue on. But it is what it is. I can't change it. And I think it would make it more difficult, especially with how they ended this movie, for you to be able to see Aunt May not know Peter Parker anymore, I think would probably be more devastating than her actual death. Now, the one scene that I think everybody is always going to be talking about for a long time is the redemption scene that we got for Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker slash Spider-Man where MJ is falling from the Statue of Liberty. Tom Holland's Peter Parker is trying to save her, but he gets hit by the Green Goblin. And then we saw Andrew Garfield jump to save her. And everybody's mind went to that scene back in Amazing Spider-Man 2, where he tried to save Gwen Stacy, but ultimately she died. And so seeing him being able to save MJ was a redemption story. And I just love the fact that Andrew Garfield played the scene so well, where we saw that his all of his angst and all of his rage and anger throughout the whole movie with what happened with Gwen. And at this moment where he saved MJ, he asked her if she was okay. And of course, MJ said, yeah, she's a little shocked by the events, but is not sure why Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker is crying. And you can see that at that moment, that Peter Parker 
felt redeemed on some level that he did something good with his life after the devastating loss of Gwen Stacy and how he must felt guilty of what happened to her for all the years since then. And I'll be honest, when I saw that scene, I knew it was coming. And to remind you, I never had any emotional connection to Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. I was a casual fan. But seeing that performance by Andrew Garfield of when he saved MJ, and you know that he was thinking about Gwen Stacy the whole time, I bawled my eyes out. And I was not expecting that at all. So that was just a fantastic scene. Probably going to be the highlight for me and probably for a lot of people of that movie is seeing that scene where that was so moving and so amazing to see Andrew Garfield be able to have that redemption story being tied in this movie and that we get the sense that he can finally move on from his past and from his loss and that he won't have so much rage with him anymore. So let's talk about the ending of this movie and what this means for the future. So in order for Peter Parker to say what was happening to the universe, he told Doctor Strange to move forward with the forgetting Peter Parker spell. Which means that everybody, including Doctor Strange, MJ, Ned, everybody will forget who Peter Parker was, which means that no one will remember that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Now, I'll be honest. I'm not sure how I feel about this entirely. It does solve a lot of issues for Peter Parker, but it also creates a lot more issues if you go down that rabbit hole, right? So, for example, does Aunt May no longer remember, if she was still alive, who Peter Parker was? I also asked the question of, does Tony Stark still have that same motivation to save the entire world without knowing who Peter Parker was? Because we know that was a huge motivator for Tony to bring back the entire world. And I think he still would have done that, but he still had Peter Parker on his mind and how he lost him. And so if he forgot about him, would he still have done that? Now, I think the theory is it only worked on the living at that time that the spell was cast. So I think you can explain it that way. But if you go down that rabbit hole, then you start asking a lot of questions that either hurt your head or seem to falter the more you poke at it, or you just have to accept the fact that it's one of those things where people remember in the sense that it's a very hazy memory and that they don't think about too much because they can't remember all the details, but they don't recall Peter Parker at all. So for example, we know that Happy said he met Aunt May through Spider-Man. So does that mean that he never knew of Peter Parker through Aunt May at all? Did Aunt May just not have a nephew? Which the answer would be yes, <laughs> when you think about it that way. But then they have to go back and erase a lot of things and then create new memories from that spell. And so I think that that's what they're going to play with. They're not going to go down that rabbit hole at all moving forward. But I think a lot of people want to start asking interesting questions. And then it's just like, Avengers Endgame with time travel is, you know, what this situation, I think Marvel is just going to do a great job of just saying it's something that just you have to accept, you know, that's how it's going to be and that we're not going to go down that rabbit hole every single time. And I think that's okay because I think we'll drive ourselves mad if we try to figure out every little detail that happens. So it's just going to take me a while to kind of figure out how I feel about the whole situation of everybody forgetting Peter Parker and some of the implications moving forward, but also what we've seen in the MCU so far as well, too. But we also know that there's still a Spider-Man in the MCU. But one thing that I just can't come to grasp with, with this new reality for Peter Parker in this MCU, is that now he is truly the loneliest Peter Parker we've ever seen on the big screen. 
Andrew Garfield still had his Aunt May. Tobey Maguire had his MJ. Like they still had people that they could go to and talk to. Peter Parker has to start from scratch. Now, he's probably going to have to make new relationships and new connections and things like that. So he won't be lonely for too long. But I got to say, if I was a 19-year-old kid and I had to start from scratch, that would be very devastating for me. I would feel so lonely in that. And I don't know if they're going to explore that moving forward or if this is just kind of a reboot. And I know a lot of people are saying that this trilogy of Spider-Man is his origin story. And I agree, that's exactly what's happening here. But I just hate the fact that that's got to be a very lonely place to be where nobody knows you as Peter Parker, as yourself anymore, especially with being a superhero and have saved the world. And that even the heroes who helped you save the world, who used to know you as Peter Parker, no longer knows you, I think is just a very, very sad and depressing thought to think about and that he's going to have to be lonely for a while. And the last thing I'll say about this with the ending here is that a lot of people say that it sets up for a Sony Marvel split moving forward, which I know they have to do that on some level. But the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, it doesn't really do that because at the end of this movie, we know that Spider-Man still exists in the MCU as a result of this because J. Jonah Jameson is still talking about, they're still trying to figure out the identity of Spider-Man. So we don't get a split necessarily because Spider-Man still exists in the MCU. So if this is really setting up for Sony and Marvel to split, it doesn't really seem crystal clear how that is because they still won't be able to explain how Spider-Man no longer exists in the MCU when he still, in fact, does as a result of this movie. And so I don't think it's going to be as clean cut. And I think they're still going to have to figure out how to leave that open because even if they do split, they either have to ignore Spider-Man and the MCU completely altogether and never bring him up anymore, or they have to go in and explain what happened to Spider-Man and why he's no longer in the MCU either. So I don't think it completely sets it up because you could have done that whether the spell was cast or not. So here are some questions I still have. One, at the end of the Spider-Man film, we see that Peter Parker goes and talks to MJ, and then he was about to say something, and then MJ moved her hair back, and he saw a Band-Aid on her forehead. I'm not sure what the significance of that was, because it seemed like that was a really important moment. I must have missed it, but I think our assumption has to be that he decided he didn't want to put her in danger anymore, so staying away is best for her. If you have another idea, please let me know. But I wasn't quite sure how to walk away from that scene with the emphasis on the Band-Aid on her forehead. Now that we've done Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, are we finally going to see a live-action Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales? I hope we see them very soon in the future and maybe in the next Spider-Man movie because as to date, Kevin Feige did confirm that they're working in the early stages of a Spider-Man 4 film. So hopefully we will see an introduction of one of those characters. So I really hope we see that in the next film. Going back to the spell that Doctor Strange cast and the fact that the Peter Parkers help quote-unquote fix the villains and then they send them back, does that affect their timelines at all? Are they sending them back fixed, but they're just going to die anyways? Or does that change their potential future? Does fixing those characters also fix things in their universe? For example, does that mean that they no longer had to have a fight where Andrew Garfield had to try to save and then ultimately lost Gwen Stacy? Does he end up being alive? I know there's a lot of conversation you could say about, well, her death had nothing to do with Electro or anything like that. But if we think about the butterfly effect, I mean, it could potentially impact that, right? 
Does Harry Osborn from Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man not die anymore? So those are the questions that I don't know if we ever get answers to. I think if they do, that's great. If they don't, I don't think people are going to be sad about that. But these are just questions that I think people are going to start asking. And then they'll start going down that rabbit hole because that's what I do all the time with those questions. Now, I got to give a shout out to my co-host's son here, Madden. He and I were having a conversation about this movie. And he pointed out something that I thought was a really good point. And he said that the whole spell that got botched meant that the people who knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man in their universe came to the MCU. In the mid-credits scene, we saw Venom and Eddie Brock show up in the MCU. But Madden made a good point about how did they get pulled in if we've never seen them interact with a Peter Parker in their universe. And it seems like, and I have to go back and watch this, but it seems like they never actually knew a Peter Parker in their universe at all. I know some people will talk about the mid credit scene in Venom Let There Be Carnage, where it seemed like Venom knew a Peter Parker and knew a Spider-Man because he said that guy on the TV. But I don't think it really confirms that he really knows him or not. It just means that he probably had some sort of weird connection. You know, kind of like how Spider-Man has that spider sense. That's probably something that Venom as a symbiote had as well, too. So I don't think it 100% confirms that. But you got to ask that question, and maybe it's a writing issue, or maybe they're going to explain that a little bit later in in the future. Who knows? But somebody over at Comic Watch, who I write uh, reviews with, didn't bring up a good point about how Venom is a symbiote and that they all have like a hive mind. So maybe we just haven't seen it yet, but one of the symbiotes actually interacted with the Peter Parker and Eddie Brock's universe and the Sony universe, and that's how Venom seems to know who that guy is seeing Peter Parker in this universe. So maybe that's what that comes from. Who knows? But I think that's a great question from Madden, and that is a good possible explanation from my colleagues over at Comic Watch. And then at the end of that scene, we see a little piece of Venom sticking around the MCU. So does that mean we're going to see a new Venom in the MCU or in the Sony-verse of Spider-Man? We'll have to wait and see. I think I'm very excited to see that. I hope they still continue to look at different kinds of enemies in the Spider-Universe, because we've already seen a lot of the traditional enemies from Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. So I'm okay with them bringing in Venom as long as they introduce a new villain that we haven't seen on screen before. And last but not least, as a result of this movie and seeing how they can bring in characters from different universes of Marvel into the MCU, I've got to ask, is this going to be an opportunity for Marvel and Disney to bring in some of the characters from the Fox Marvel Universe in a similar way? I know that There's been confirmation that Deadpool is going to be in the MCU at some point and that Kevin Feige already has a plan for the X-Men and how they're going to introduce them. And we already got confirmation about Fantastic Four that was originally started as a Fox Universe Marvel property is now going to show up in the MCU in its own proper. But I'm interested to see if they will bring in those characters from the Fox Marvel Universe into this in a similar fashion of how we saw our own Tom Holland Spider-Man and the MCU interact with the Sony Universe Spider-Man that existed outside of the MCU. So, for example, I know a lot of people love to see Hugh Jackman play Wolverine one more time, and maybe we'll see a MCU version of Wolverine interacting with Hugh Jackman's Wolverine from the Fox Universe. I know I would love to see something like that. I don't want to see them do like a replication of what they did with this movie, but I think it'd be great if they do something similar to that effect of either just a nod to them or seeing like a short scene with them or something like that. And I think they're going to be doing that with this whole multiverse storyline that they're going with. The other thing that I'd love to see 
and I don't think we're going to see this for another 15 or 20 years, but I would love to see the original Avengers, Chris Evans, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, who's still in the MCU, but at some point I'm sure he'll leave from age and just from wanting to do other projects. Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, who is still in the MCU as well too, but I know that he's getting up there as well in terms of projects and age. If we're going to see them show up in the MCU again in 20 years, playing older versions of themselves, maybe it's going to be the Wastelanders storyline that we see, or maybe it's just another time travel thing like what we've seen with, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but Star Trek Generations, that's how we saw Captain Jean-Luc Picard and Captain James Kirk interact with each other. And maybe it'll be a similar situation like that as well, too. So I think that'd be a great way for them to do that, to pull in some of the original Avengers into a future project like that, even though they don't have any current contracts with them. I think they'll probably have that pull in at some point later on in the future. Again, no time soon, though. So before we end this episode, I do want to give a shout out to a couple of listeners who talked to me about this movie. First one is my friend Kevin Rossi at Bronco Nova on Twitter. He is a colleague of mine from Comic Watch as well, too. He told me, I think it did an incredible job capturing the last 20 years of Spider-Man movies and comic book movies in general. This is the third MCU Spider-Man film, but for many, it's their eighth, and it provides closure to the longtime fans and a fresh beginning for everyone. The first Spider-Man movie was what made me first go into a comic book shop. So in many ways, No Way Home is more powerful and important to me as a fan than any other of the previous MCU films. And I got to agree wholeheartedly. Again, I was not somebody that was a diehard Spider-Man fan. I was more casual fan, but it had a lot of meaning to me because there was a lot of nostalgia for me and it did a great job of bringing in a huge range of Spider-Man fans and MCU fans and just comic book superhero fans in general and bringing them all together. Because even if you never watch those other movies, which you should in order to get a fuller appreciation of Spider-Man No Way Home, you can at least get a synopsis of what those movies were about to understand and get that appreciation of what this film means, not just for the MCU, but also for all Spider-Man fans around the world. So that's a great point, Kevin. I agree with you completely. And my last shout out is going to be Derek Hoskins of Paperweight Entertainment Podcast, who I went on their show to talk about Spider-Man and Hawkeye as well, too. His Twitter username is at DLHoskins03. And he said, I loved it completely. It's supplanted into the Spider-Verse as my favorite Spider-Man movie. I thought the three Peters were perfectly balanced and felt like continuations on their individual characters. Aunt May genuinely shocked me. Green Goblin was maybe the best adaptation of a comic to live action villain. I love the ending because it perfectly sets up Spider-Man to be used by both Sony and Marvel without dealing with too many issues. I was bummed that he didn't at least try to get MJ's number to start over. And I think we're always going to be talking about how this movie ended and if we liked the ending or not. And if we don't like it, it's going to be for different reasons. And I think they're just leaving it that way. So that way there's a lot of opportunities, just like what Derek said. I don't think there's going to be a clean split as a result of this that's going to be any different from what they could do with any other ending. But I agree with Derek that there's going to be some things that we're going to like about the ending and some things that we don't like about the ending as well, too. So there you have it. Those are my thoughts and reviews for Spider-Man No Way Home. You can also find my review of this episode for Comic Watch, which I will put a link in the show notes below. If you have anything you want to share with me about this, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Hulk, or you can contact me through our podcast social media handles as well. Whichever is best for you, we'd love to hear from all of you. 
And that wraps up another review episode of The Caption Life. We hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to us on. You can also follow us on social media under the username at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out, tag us in your post. For more information about us and all of our previous episodes, visit thecaptionlife.com.